mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com There's something about food. When I read a story that uses food to help tell it, suddenly I'm doing more than reading. I'm feeling the food in my hands, and I'm smelling and tasting it. I'm hearing the chopping or the crackling or the sizzling. I'm associating it with my own memories. Cooking and eating is one of the most sensory experiences we have, and that makes food writing one of my favorite kinds of writing ever. For me, it's transportive, and it's the perfect vehicle for stories. My colleague Ravinder Bogal agrees. I remember Nigel Slater saying to me, um, you know, I'm not interested in the recipe for a lasagna. I'm interested in the recipe for your lasagna and what the story behind it is. And I think that's, that, that's it. It's the stories that make the food. Ravinder's family is from India. She grew up in Kenya and she has a restaurant in London now called Jaconi. Her columns in the FT and her cookbooks are all infused with stories from these places. She recently joined me on stage at the FT Weekend Festival with two other food-based storytellers, Angela Hui and Kitty Tate, to talk about the power of food writing. We're going to share the best parts of that conversation with you today. Angela is a journalist. She recently wrote a very popular memoir about working at her parents' Chinese takeaway in rural Wales. It's called Takeaway, Stories from a Childhood Behind the Counter. Kitty is just 19 years old, and she is one of the most popular bakers on Instagram and TikTok. Kitty owns a bakery with her dad in Oxfordshire, and they wrote a beautiful book together about baking and how baking saved her life, called Bread Song. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining. Uh, welcome to a panel that I am really thrilled to host. It's kind of my dream panel. So I'd love to start by hearing first how you came to tell your stories through food. I know it's different for all of you a little bit. Um, Kitty, maybe we could start with you. Uh, could you take us a bit into how you first discovered baking bread and then at what point you realized, wait, there might be a book here. Yeah, of course. So when I was 14, I started to really struggle with my mental health. And almost out of the blue, I just became overwhelmed with this crippling anxiety and depression. And baking was my way of not only finding purpose, but also just distracting myself from all these thoughts that were just constantly running around my brain. So by writing about food, and especially in the book that I wrote my dad, Bread Song, it wasn't just a way about writing about food. I think it was a way about talking about mental health, but in a way that was joyful and that gave you something out of it, not just dark and hard. Yeah, it's, I loved it. It's a really wonderful book. Angela, I'm curious at what point you realized that your family story uh, was kind of perfect to be a memoir. Um, 
you mentioned when we spoke, the takeaway was closing, but had you also always been thinking about writing this and been thinking about this as a topic that you were exploring and writing? I've always, you know, had all these thoughts and ideas and recipes. You know, I, I grew up in an environment where, you know, working behind the counter since I was like eight years old, you know, uh, stepping on a little blue stool to reach the counter, you know, struggling to reach over to give customers like big two liter bottles of Coke and, you know, deep frying chicken balls and chips. And, um, you know, I, I've always felt that, you know, I never really realized like how unique that experience was. I thought everyone had a professional kitchen and it has a <laughs> like, personal kitchen. And um, yeah, and it wasn't until then that we, we closed the shop in 2018. And then it made me really reflect on all those times, all the good times, the bad times. Um, and then it just made me realize like how that's kind of dying out, you know, declining takeaways for loads of reasons. So I really wanted to have a um, just kind of write down all those thought processes of um, you know working this very thankless job. It was so much bigger than food um, for the Chinese takeaway. It was about the community itself, the people that we served, and you know a lot of these customers that walked through the door. They watched me and my brothers grow up behind the counter, and I really wanted to kind of tell that story. Yeah, brilliant. Um, Ravinder, you're coming at this from the perspective of a cookbook writer and a writer and a chef. And um, I'm curious what's made you over the years, uh, like, infuse personal stories and history in your writing. Has that always been the way you wanted to cook, sort of combining those things? Yeah, I've, I've always really been interested in... Um in the stories of women particularly. You know, I grew up in, in a house in Kenya. It was an extended family. So my grandparents, my uncle, my aunt, their children, the five of us and my parents, and then whoever happened to be visiting. And the kitchen just seemed to be a place that was full of stories, women's stories. And these were really, really ordinary women, but with extraordinary stories. They cooked for their families and um, never really got a platform and their stories were never told. And the kitchen was often the place where these women sort of, um, uh, you know, therapized in a way. And I always wanted to capture that. And I just think that food is actually ultimately always about people, whether you're throwing a dinner party or whether you're, you're running a restaurant, it is, it's an industry about people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I've been thinking, uh over the past couple of weeks in preparation for this about uh, why I love food writing so much. And um, I think you can just tell so many stories about culture and identity through it. And like our identities are so wrapped up in what we eat and also everybody eats, right? So there's something like everybody breathes, but that's way less interesting of a lens and everybody eats and it's like they eat in kind of some different ways, but in the same way in some ways. And so everyone can relate to stories that use food. Um, and and then, I think everyone's yeah. experiences of eating as well is so unique, like right. culturally, um, you know, who you grew up with and where you grew up. Yeah, I'm curious. Yeah, I just would love to pass it to both of you. Like, why use food to tell our stories? Why, why do it in the first place? Why does food work uh, in ways that just telling the story? Yeah, of- I think with food is like everyone has their own relationship to food, whether it's good and brings them joy, whether it's bad where, you know, it's tied up in very traumatic memories or, you know, they just kind of reject food. I think that's what makes food so interesting. And I tried to talk about, 
you know, and sometimes it necessarily doesn't always bring joy. You know, sometimes there's a lot of stress. You know, when you're working in the kitchen, it's a very tight space. It's busy and it's hot and you're ending up like shouting over each other or like throwing things. You know, it's a very heated environment and a high pressure job. And um, and I kind of wanted to talk about all the different ways in which food kind of has different intersections of a way. You know, how food can also be political, how also food can be um, uh, tied up in identity, like you talk about as well, um, and I tried to talk through the kind of roller coaster journey of what it's like running a you know independent Chinese takeaway. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right as well that you know food is life, so it is everything. It's joy, it's pain, it's sadness, it's grief. But um, you know, I think it's really important that we publish, especially as cookbook authors, that we pub- you know we push with our publishers to allow, be allowed to tell the whole story. Mm-hmm. And I think that's when, when I was writing my last book, I struggled with that because um, there were stories that I'd written that were, they were like, oh, this feels a bit sort of um, dark. Right. And are you sure you want to include this story? And there was one in particular, which was, it looked at the politics of food for widows. And it, it was a story about a woman having flashbacks of a very, very unhappy marriage that involved domestic violence. And, and then sort of um, in her sort of lull and stupor, she begins to eat rasgullas, which are normally eaten on a celebration. And it's the judgment of the community that happens. And, you know, the whispers about her. And it was such an important story for me to include in the book because it's important we have these conversations mm-hmm. and look at ourselves as people and, and sort of examine what, like I said again, these women's stories that are very untold. Luckily, they they agreed with me in the end. I was very <laughs> persuasive and, and they kept it in. So, yeah. Hey, that's great. I actually, um, uh, I, I do want to ask you all about your relationship with disclosure, because when you're telling your personal story through food, you're also telling a lot about yourself. Uh, and uh, Ravinder, I, one of my favorite things about your column is that sometimes it can get a little bit dark. Uh, <laughs> I actually think that's really moving and interesting for columns about food. Um, one of your columns last year that I really loved, and we've talked about, uh, was about a Kenyan bread called mundazi, like a, yeah. a donut, and yeah. it's related to a difficult memory uh, of your uncle. Um, yeah. yeah, it's and it's always difficult because, of course, my uncle has children, and to, to write a story about him is always is always going to be a very difficult thing because it's triggering for them. And mm-hmm. so uh, I grew up with him. He was an alcoholic, and. Um, he basically, I mean, he was, he's an alcoholic, but he was a party animal. He loved life and, you know, was life and soul of a party. So when I was very young, he built this sort of wooden bar in our house and then basically threw these crazy parties. And I remember as a child seeing people, you know, coming out of the rooms, uh, bedrooms, you know, locked bedrooms, kind of doing up their clothes or falling acrobatically downstairs and the tinkle of glasses and strangers in the house all the time and this kind of discord and chaos. So, you know, we would drink sodas, ice-cold sodas at 11 o'clock. We would watch vampire movies and then no one, no one really noticed whether we were having dinner or not. So often we would go down to the kiosk to buy mandazi, which are um, like these amazing donuts that are really pillowy and and sort of just like bread-like and and delicious. They're a very typical Kenyan donut and they're fried hot. You know, you eat them when they're hot. 
but my, my uncle's nickname for me was Mandazi as a child. So when he died on one Christmas Eve, just suddenly dropped dead, you know, a massive heart attack and his liver was going anyway. And, um, and I remember that Christmas Eve making Mandazi and eating them and they just tasted of remembrance and mourning and sadness, but they were delicious and comforting too. So yeah, that was the whole, but yeah, it's, it's always difficult to decide, um, you know, when you're going to write about these um, people who are real and had real lives and, and, and that line of respect that you don't cross. And, and some people, my husband hates being written about. So he's always <laughs> like, can you get me out of your columns? Like, Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, Kitty, I'm conscious that you are 19, is that right? Yes. Yeah, and you came to sort of be known publicly at uh, 16? Seven? Yeah. 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 Um, and your story is very centered around um, your struggles with mental health. Mm. And it's like a real joy for many people, even who don't know you personally, to see how well you're doing now and learn from you and to like get so much joy from the work that you do. Um, but I also wonder what it's like to have shared it. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's, none of our mental health really is static, but I imagine. Question. Yeah. Yeah, because... It would be so easy to be like, oh, started baking bread and then I was fine and anxiety <laughs> and depression. <laughs> yeah. But that wasn't the way at all. So at first it became this amazing tool for me to really like transform my brain. But then, and I don't know how you found this, when lockdown hit, I was running the bakery and people just went mad. So I went from like five days a week to seven days a week and I was working through the night and I was working... If it was a 12-hour day, I was like, oh, that was easy because mm. I ended up doing 16 hours and my mental health just fragmented again. But this time, the thing that had helped me, the thing that had really brought me back was the thing that was now slowly destroying me. Mm. And it's one of those things, like you said, food is complicated and making food is complicated because you are in service to people and mm. despite how passionate you can be being so passionate means you can also become a bit of a slave to it yeah. and I had to really work on making sure that bread was just a passion of mine but it wasn't my whole life yeah yeah um Angela I want to ask you how your parents responded uh <laughs> uh but you told me that your, your parents don't speak much English and haven't no, read it. They haven't read it, um, which I'm really scared of. Uh, but it's been translated to Chinese next year, so I'm very worried. <laughs> um, no, 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 it's, it's kind of similar. You know, it's, um, I, I really struggled with imposter syndrome and anxiety about when it was coming out because these are such personal details, you know, detailing of like what goes on in the shop and talking about very personal things like arguments that we would have. Um, and my dad, who, you know, is quite big in the Chinese community where um, a lot of them are, you know, they would go to casinos after working in the kitchen all day and they needed some way to, you know, relieve stress. So I, I kind of detail a lot of that. And, and I think a lot of a lot of them, like Chinese community, they're very secretive. So it's it was very difficult for me and I was really, really 
worried and scared like what my family members would say and I think my mum was the one that actually gave me some really great advice while I was writing my book and I was really scared of when it was coming out and um, my mum was just like as long as you've kind of written it as honestly and truthfully and most authentically as yourself and it doesn't really matter what anyone else thinks and um, and it's coming from my point of view you know it's only no one else can kind of write your story for you. Yeah. And also to like when it's pretty amazing, I imagine that like when you do publish about it, uh, people come to you who haven't had the exact experience that you have and say like, wow, thank you. That connected to me in a way that, you know, you maybe couldn't have expected. No, exactly. Like the other day I, I I keep getting emails from people who run my book and, you know, they related to it, even though I never thought they would be my demographic. Like the other day I had like a, a 97 year old Irish man who emailed me saying like, oh, thank you for writing your book. You know, I grew up in a pub. I grew up since I was like eight years old. I worked behind the pub, you know, feeling like I had lost my childhood because I had to, you know, help my family. I had this family obligation to help out. But, you know, I read your book and I loved it, you know, and I never thought a 97-year-old Irishman would love this book. Yeah. So, yeah. I want to ask you, um, you all about form a little bit. All three of you have done a really amazing job breaking format and there's kind of like a very traditional way that people write about food or people write a book and they kind of just um they write their story like a normal chapter book and it goes out or they write recipes in a very specific way but um kitty your memoir is full of drawings and scribbles and handwritten notes and some of the sentences are these big pull quotes and halfway through it you know in the narrative we're actually learning about bread with you and then halfway through it it just becomes a a cookbook um, which is amazing. And, and um, Angela, your memoir is kind of structured around recipes and the ones that meant something to you from the takeaway. And, you know, Ravinder, your cookbook, Jaconi, is also kind of weaves very beautifully between story and recipes. And uh, I'm curious if any of you can speak to that. Like, how did you think about format, how you approach your work so it's not just words on a page or traditional? So for us, we did it during lockdown. So it was, we got Bloomsbury to publish it, which we were very, very lucky with. But apart from that, we were left to our own devices with it. And just like our story, our book is quite chaotic. So it starts with how we got into bread. And we have these drawings that my dad drew on each page. And they are these scribbles, but they tell the story when words can't. And I think to write it, it was something that I was very scared to do because it meant of going back to a time where I wasn't very happy. And actually writing about it, it made me go over those times and see it through a different light. And I wrote it with my dad very much like pen pals. Yeah. And then when it came to the recipes, I think, and I don't know about you, when you look at recipe books, sometimes it can feel incredibly intimidating, mm-hmm. especially baking books. And I so remember looking at these baking books and looking at the bread and just thinking, my bread doesn't look like that, but my kitchen also doesn't look like that. Mm-hmm. And it was really important to us that we really included that. So the pictures are authentic and it is what we bake, but there's flour in the corners, a little mm-hmm. bit of like honey that's spilled over because that is kind of the nature to my baking and my recipes, is chaos. And also, <laughs> I mean, especially with bread, it's, it's very precise normally, and I'm not a precise person. So with all the recipes, it's like, well, when it's proved this much, it's ready, not after two, three hours, because everyone's kitchen's different and everyone's process is different. Yeah. 
Um, I think for me, um, when I wrote the Jikoni book, it was very much about memories, specific memories, specific stories that I felt very strongly that I had to tell. I think almost all the stories in the Jikoni book are about women, yeah. um, whether it's the pickle maker who was this incredible woman. And I just remember these memories of kind of going to get pickles from her when I was a child, you know, a big satchel with empty jars. And you'd turn up and she was deaf and she had guard geese, not dogs. And you'd have to like sort of stand there shouting for her for almost an hour sometimes. Wow. And then, you know, just the paraphernalia of her pick pickling shed and the smells, the strong smell of vinegar, um, you know, all these spices, this giant pestle and mortar. And then the way she laid down her pickles, almost like bait, you know, like mm. making, making you want everything. And these were such strong memories and they kind of led how the chapters would kind of form and what would go into the chapters, what recipes would would be included in that. Mm. Um, yeah, so Mai has like recipes for every chapter. And um, I think the, t like, the top review was like, I didn't buy a cookbook, I bought it for as a memoir. So people got really confused. <laughs> um, no, so I, I, I specifically wanted it to, that, that kind of, built the foundation of the book. You know, I, I've been slowly collecting recipes from my mum. And, you know, in the lull between our, when we were working the takeaway, we would always cook together because, you know, my, my Cantonese isn't the best, you know, and I feel like me and my mum and my parents, we always have like a language barrier and we kind of communicate through food. She always asks me like, she doesn't ask how you are. She asks like, have you eaten yet? Or like, have you had dinner? Or have you had your soup? Or, you know, caring yeah. and through action and through food. And so that was the way that we always bonded. Mm. So I wanted it as a way to kind of um, collect all the recipes. So that was the kind of foundations of it. But I really wanted to kind of weave all those different ways that we talk about food um, and how that kind of ties into my story in the Chinese takeaway, you know, from like egg fried rice and also other foods that my dad would kind of bribe me as well. It was like <laughs> uh, steamed eggs or whatever. My dad did something wrong or when he was shouted at us or, you know, throw something because he was in the heat of the moment, he would always make it up through food. And, you know, so there was always food that was tied with kind of grief and happiness and um, trauma. So I really wanted to kind of bring all that together. So I have one more question for all of you. What advice would you give to people who want to start to do this themselves? Uh, how to tell their story through food? Yeah, what would you tell them? Kitty. I think the biggest thing for us was the imposter syndrome because everyone eats food, so you think who needs another recipe book or who needs another? But actually, just go for it. Even if you make a difference to one Irish man, there's one <laughs> Irish man who's like, wow, there's someone who's gone through a similar or completely different but experience that I have. So go for it and just try. And it doesn't have to be perfect. Your food doesn't have to be picture perfect. You don't have to be a Michelin star chef or a renowned baker or anything like that. You just have to put the joy or whatever you found in food, the stories, the passion, and put it to paper because people will relate. Yeah. Absolutely. As long as you've written it as authentically as you can, you know, no one else can tell your story. I feel like it's as long as you tell it through with heart and a passion. And I think that's what really matters. And it really does shine through. You can tell when someone's a very, when something's like half baked or undercooked or, yeah, it's a pun thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's such good advice. Uh, brilliant. Kitty, Angela, Ravinder, thank you so much. Thank you all so much for your questions and for being here.
That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the life and arts podcast of the Financial Times. As you know, we love chatting with you. The show is on X, formerly known as Twitter. It's at FT Weekend Pod. And I am on Instagram and X, but mostly Instagram, talking with you about culture at Lila Raps. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Monique Mulima helped produce this episode. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and our global head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week.